Okay, so um, last night somebody mentioned my glasses, um, and that's where I'm going to start, because I got these. These are my first pair of bifocals, and time has passed really quickly, and that actually means it was six years ago. Um, but this year, my eyesight seems to have taken like a significant downturn. And I don't know if any of you have experienced that. Is that normal? Like, you know, kind of like crept into it. And then all of a sudden, like, I'm going blind. Um, it's kind of how I feel. Um, so, but it kind of feels like the Israelites downturn and judges, right? Um, <laughs> so, but I, but I don't know if anybody else does this, but like if you're at the rare occasion, you're actually looking like at a printed picture or like a magazine. Do you ever go, <laughs> do you, do y'all, and you're like, you're so used to being able to magnify everything on your phone or your computer. And I just cannot resist that urge. I sit there and I'm like, oh, that's such a pretty room. And then I'm like, Got it. <laughs> so, anywho, um, so, but that's kind of what these last chapters of Judges remind me of. So, we kind of have the 30,000 foot view, but then now it's like a magnified, zoomed in of what was actually happening on the ground, right? So, just kind of what it reminded me of. Uh, well, the narratives here are like that. And if you recall from our introduction, Judges has three distinct um, separations or sections to it. And the first is the introduction that was in chapters one through three. And then you have the body, which everyone's most familiar with, with the judges. And um, that's actually chapters three through 16. And then last week we started with this final chapter, um, which is the brutal narratives of God's people in all of scripture. Um, and these, uh, and in these chapters alone here in this last section, we find these things, adultery, homosexuality, rape, murder, mutilation, harboring of criminals, civil war, destruction of cities, execution of women, children, animals, hasty vows, and kidnapping of young women. Well, if you happen to be someone that's drawn to a dark and seedy story or show, uh, this real-life expose does not disappoint. And it does appear that most, if not all, biblical scholars agree that these chapters, um, these accounts, actually took place much earlier in the days of the period of the Judges. Um, so you wonder, why was it organized this way then? Why would we have an introduction and then the judges and then these narratives, which actually happened earlier, but here they are at the end. Um, one of the commentaries that we actually suggested to you actually discusses these narratives with the introduction. They moved it up forward, and Janine and I kind of looked for them in that book, and we were like, why do they just not talk about it? Well, they talked about it at the beginning. Um, and would that have been a better placement? Would that have been better? While the Holy Spirit was introducing us to this period of the judges, would it have been better for us to get a clear picture of what we were dealing with at the beginning? But have you thought about the fact that if this was happening earlier in the days of the judges, how we may have misimagined the situation? Because the people of Israel would have apparently declined much more rapidly than we might have hoped. Nevertheless, God has preserved Scripture in this order, introduction, body, narrative. And I don't know why he did that exactly, but I can tell you how it affects me, and maybe it affects you the same way. 
it drives home the point. It's almost as if he says, before you close this book, don't get the wrong idea. The situation in Israel was dire. The people had forgotten their first love, the faithful God who had rescued them. And I want you to put a pin in that for just a minute, and we're going to do a little word study. So if you go to Judges 19.1, the verse says, In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. A few weeks ago in leaders' meeting, Natalie Vaughn asked, What is a concubine? At that moment, I thought that was a silly question. But then we sat around and tried to define it, and suddenly it didn't didn't seem so silly anymore. What is a concubine? The word used in 19.1, according to Strong's, is the Hebrew word isha. The definition is woman, wife, female, opposite of man. It is used 781 times in the Bible, and the first time being in Genesis 2.22. That verse says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, Isha, and brought her to the man. And then again in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, Isha, and they shall become one flesh. Isha is translated 425 times as wife, 324 times as woman, 10 times as one, 5 times as married, 2 times as female, and 14 times as miscellaneous, which would include the word concubine. So all cleared up, right? (laughs) Hardly. There is another Hebrew word that can be translated as concubine as in verse 9. So surely that one will be more helpful, right? Pelegish. Definition, concubine. Thanks. Uh, So further investigation is required. In scripture, probably the most famous concubine is Hagar. Maybe that wasn't the one that came to your mind. Um, I know you recall that Abraham's wife, Sarah, gave her husband her slave woman so that Abraham could finally conceive the long-desired child, Ishmael. And we know how well that went. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, also had concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. You remember, Jacob was caught up in the love triangle of feuding sister wives who were competing for place through bearing children. So these crazy ladies also gave their husbands servant women, because that would have been so helpful is to have more wives, right? To bear more children whose sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher were actually born to the concubines. All of the sons of Jacob were inheritors, rightful sons of the father. And even Ishmael received a blessing from the Lord, a great nation. But from our knowledge of Hagar, Bilhah, and Zilpah, the concubines appear to be under the wife's authority in some way. There are two other passages that scholars use to enhance our knowledge of the idea of a concubine. So let's look at those. And you're welcome to look at it if you want to. I'm going to start in Exodus 21, verse 7. You don't have to. I'm going to read them. But if you want to. It starts with, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, 
then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment or money. And that means she would not have to pay or be redeemed. Now, to Deuteronomy, I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 21, starting in verse 10. It starts with, When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But she shall not, you shall not sell her for money, nor treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Okay, so I'm going to try to summarize a few things that we can pick up from these passages. And first of all, we find that a concubine had a distinction from a wife. A concubine might be referred to as a wife, but to my knowledge, a wife was never referred to as a concubine. Sarah was never referred to as a concubine, so to speak. So the second thing is God set up protections for the concubine in Mosaic law, which is what I read to you from Deuteronomy and uh, and, uh, Exodus. Similar to divorce, it was not created by God, but God had protections with it um, for the people that were engaged. Another thing, it was likely that some type of ceremony or act, like the one described in Deuteronomy, had taken place to solidify her position as a wife, albeit a second-class one. So I had originally thought, well, I bet there was no type of ceremony. There was actually no marriage that had taken place, but that doesn't seem to be the case as I studied this and looked around. It does seem to be that she had gone through some type of ceremony or some type of act that did include her as an actual wife. In Exodus, we see the phrases another wife and marital rights used. In Deuteronomy, she is referred to as your wife. And in Judges, we see that the concubine's father was referred to as father-in-law. So an ordinary slave was to be released after seven years, but that was not true for the concubine. While they were likely added from outside the nation of Israel, they had to receive some type of settlement or agreement from the husband in order to be free. They weren't free to come and go based on their word alone. There had to be some type of agreement. While the concubine was protected under God's merciful law, she was a woman of man-made status a second-class citizen in her own home. Let's consider the concubine of our story. Of course, our natural inclination while reading this judge's story is to sympathize with her, and we should. We should be disgusted. We should be angry, enraged to read of her being tossed to a horde of worthless men, hungry to satisfy their wicked, perverted lusts, all in order to protect the men. The knowledge of her repeated abuse and rape leading to her death is nearly too much for us to digest. And unfortunately, the story sinks deeper as her beautiful, created body is ripped apart into 12 pieces. All of this 
at the hands of the one person who was pledged and even required to provide for and protect her. And no, we cannot forget that this story began because our martyr, our Isha, committed adultery. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So why spend so much time on defining a concubine? It is far from the main point of this narrative. But do you ever wonder why the Levite had a concubine? What about David or Solomon? They had concubines. I bet you've wondered why they did. Why do we even need an unclear classification for a married woman with childbearing responsibilities? You know why. The depravity of man's heart. So I want to go back for a minute to our word isha. Remember that it's used in Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife isha, and they shall become one flesh. Hold fast become one flesh. The first marriage. Adam and Eve were instructed to hold fast to one another and become as one flesh. Why? Because marriage was intended to be the best earthly picture of a faithful God setting his love on his one chosen people, his first love. Whether we are married or not, All of us have an understanding of what it means to have a man set his love upon a woman. I dare say that nearly every one of us loves a good romance. And I hope and pray that everyone who desires it experiences having a good man set his love upon her. To be seen, chosen, and known by another person who vows to provide protect, and lead her all of his days. It is the way it was meant to be. Genesis says so. But we know all too well that this is so often not the case among us mere mortals. Passions fade. Beauty is overlooked or forgotten. Unfaithfulness creeps in and steals. But our human marriages were meant to be a picture and a sometimes wonky representation of where the true love lies. And their failings were to point us to the one who designed them. If you want to turn with me again, I'm going back to Deuteronomy, and this time in chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you And it's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Skipping down to verse 13. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Now over to Deuteronomy 10, 15. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. The Israelites did not understand 
God had seen, chosen, and known them, his beloved treasured bride, as they were on that day. He stood ready, willing, and able to bless her generously with peace, abundance, and joy. All she had to do was to trust him, keep her eyes on him, listen to him, and obey. But instead, look at how she responded to his perfect love. Adultery, homosexuality, rape, murder, mutilation, harboring of criminals, civil war, destruction of cities, execution of women, children, animals, hasty vows, kidnapping of young women. Not quite the tender response of a bride who knows how much she is worth to her perfectly righteous groom. It is the response of an adulterer, a tragedy indeed. I want to show you something else, though, and if you want to turn to Judges, we're going to go back to the very beginning, to Judges 2 and 3. I'm going to go quickly through some things that we may not remember. Um, Judges 2, 11. I'm going to start there. Wait for you all to open your books if you want. Judges 2, 11. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 2, 12. They abandoned the Lord, went after other gods, provoked the Lord to anger. 2, 14. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. 2.16, he raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. 2.17, yet they did not listen. They whored after other gods. 2.18, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. I'll pay attention here in 2.21. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he dies in order to test Israel by them, well, they, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord. Now, Chapter 3, verse 2, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Purpose. That faithful, loving bridegroom did not turn his back on his bride. Instead, he worked all of her unfaithfulness for her good. The wretched, putrid wickedness of Judges 17 through 21 was still working for a greater purpose, a higher calling, the shaping of a faithful bride. I think one of the most surprising parts of studying Judges this time around for me has been to see how active God was in the darkness. Yes, the people follow cycles of decline. They groan and sin, and then they stop groaning and keep sinning. And all the while, God was actively working. We saw Christ appear and the Holy Spirit come and go. Even in these final chapters of great darkness, God is still speaking, like in verse 2028, 20, and he is still working, like in verse 2035. The faithful bridegroom has remained faithful, though his bride has not. The book of Judges ends on a rather gloomy note. We find the key verse for the entire book at the very end. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's like a tremendous thud. But if you turn the page, we actually get a little bonus book of romance, the story of Ruth. Now, we've already studied Ruth, but we are going to, I'm going to kind of highlight it a little bit. Ruth 1 begins in the days when the judges ruled. If Judges 17 through 21 are zoomed in close-up views of the situation on the ground, so is Ruth. We love love because our God loves love. Ruth is a love story, and it isn't our God kind to give us such a beautiful one. 
let's savor that story for just a minute. Ruth arrives in Israel limping with her broken mother-in-law, Naomi, or Mara, bitterness. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Ruth goes out to work and provide for herself and her mother-in-law. She just happens to choose Boaz's field. Boaz sees her and immediately provides for and protects her. My daughter, do not go out to glean in another field or leave this one. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He even gives generously to her at his own expense. Let her glean even from among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it to her for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Naomi, hearing this, says, Blessed be the man who took notice of you. He is one of our redeemers. It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Ruth says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz, if he is not willing, then surely, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And then Boaz took Ruth, and she, this foreigner, this Isha, became his wife, not concubine, wife. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. What a contrast to the Levite and his concubine. God did not leave his people without a redeemer. Boaz and Ruth just happen to be the grandparent, great-grandparents of our great King David, and David just happens to be the mini-great-grandparent of the Prince of Peace, our Savior Jesus. No longer can it be said that there was no king in Israel. He has come. My friends, Scripture is the love story of God. And remarkably, that love story includes the book of Judges. He did it all. Look at what he did for his people. See it and rejoice. Though darkness had fallen on the land and filled the people's hearts, God was still faithfully working and moving, bringing hope for the future, and he still is. The tremendous thud of Judges 21 to drive home the point. Before you close this book, don't get the wrong idea. The situation in Israel was dire. And it is dire for us too. Will we remember our first love and fight to be faithful to him alone? I'll close with this passage from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He has done it all. He has seen, he has chosen, and he has set his love upon us. And may we remember. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that even the gruesome, horrible, sinful world can remind us of how much you love us. Help us, Father, to be faithful women who remember that love. Help us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.